Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Introduction to The Last of the Mohicans. A narrative of 1757 by James Fenimore Cooper. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Introduction It is believed that the scene of this tale, and most of the information necessary to understand its illusions, are rendered sufficiently obvious to the reader in the text itself or in the accompanying notes. Still, there is so much obscurity in the Indian traditions and so much confusion in the Indian names, to render some explanation useful. Few men exhibit greater diversity, or, if we may so express it, greater antithesis of character, than the native warrior of North America. In war he is daring, boastful, cunning, ruthless, self-denying, and self-devoted. In peace just, generous, hospitable, revengeful, superstitious, modest, and commonly chaste. These are qualities, it is true, which do not distinguish all alike, but they are so far the predominating traits of these remarkable people as to be characteristic. It is generally believed that the aborigines of the American continent have an Asiatic origin, there are many physical as well as moral facts which corroborate this opinion, and some few that would seem to weigh against it. The color of the Indian, the writer believes, is peculiar to himself, and while his cheekbones have a very striking indication of tartar origin, his eyes have not. Climate may have had great influence on the former but it is difficult to see how it can have produced the substantial difference which exists in the latter. The imagery of the Indian, both in his poetry and his oratory, is oriental, chastened, and perhaps improved, by the limited range of his practical knowledge. He draws his metaphors from the clouds, the seasons, the birds, the beast and the vegetable world. In this, perhaps, he does no more than any other energetic and imaginative race would do, being compelled to set bounds to fancy by experience. But the North American Indian clothes his ideas in a dress which is different from that of the African, and is oriental in itself. His language has the richness and sententious fullness of the Chinese. He will express a phrase in a word, and he will qualify the meaning of an entire sentence by a syllable. 
he will even convey different significations by the simplest inflections of the voice. Philologists have said that there are but two or three languages, properly speaking, among all the numerous tribes which formerly occupied the country that now composes the United States. They ascribe the known difficulty one people have to understand another to corruptions and dialects. The writer remembers to have been present at an interview between two chiefs of the great prairies west of the Mississippi, and when an interpreter was in attendance who spoke both their languages. The warriors appeared to be on the most friendly terms, and seemingly conversed much together. Yet, according to the account of the interpreter, each was absolutely ignorant of what the other said. They were of hostile tribes, brought together by the influence of the American government. And, it is worthy of remark, that a common policy led them both to adopt the same subject. They mutually exhorted each other to be of use in the event of the chances of war throwing either of the parties into the hands of his enemies. Whatever may be the truth as respects the root and genius of the Indian tongues, it is quite certain they are now so distinct in their words as to possess most of the disadvantages of strange languages. Hence much of the embarrassment that has arisen in learning their histories, and most of the uncertainty which exists in their traditions. Like nations of higher pretensions, the American Indian gives a very different account of his own tribal race from that which is given by other people. He is much addicted to overestimating his own perfections, and to undervaluing those of his rival or his enemy. A trait which may possibly be thought corroborative of the mosaic account of the creation. The whites have assisted greatly in rendering the traditions of the aborigines more obscure by their own manner of corrupting names. Thus, the term used in the title of this book has undergone the changes of Mohicani, Mohicans, and Mohegans, the latter being the word commonly used by the whites. When it is remembered that the Dutch, who first settled New York, the English, and the French, all gave appellations to the tribes that dwelt within the country which is the scene of this story, and that the Indians not only gave different names to their enemies, but frequently to themselves, the cause of the confusion will be understood. In these pages, Lenny Lenape, Lenope, Delawares, Wapanachki, and Mohicans all mean the same people, or tribes of the same stock. The Mengue, the Maquas, the Mingos, and the Iroquois though not all strictly the same, are identified frequently by the speakers being politically confederated and opposed to those just named. Mingo was a term of peculiar reproach, as were Mangue and Maqua to a less degree. The Mohicans were the possessors of the country first occupied by the Europeans in this portion of the continent. They were, consequently, the first dispossessed. 
and the seemingly inevitable fate of all these people who disappear before the advances or it might be termed the inroads of civilization as the vendure of their native forest falls before the nipping frost is represented as having already befallen them there is sufficient historical truth in the picture to justify the use that has been made of it in point of fact the country which is the scene of the following tale has undergone as little change since the historical events alluded to had place as almost any other district of equal extent within the whole limits of the united states there are fashionable and well-attended watering places at and near the spring where hawkeye halted to drink and roads traversed the forest where he and his friends were compelled to journey without even a path glens has a large village and while william henry and even a fortress of later date are only to be traced as ruins there is another village on the shores of the horican but beyond this the enterprise and energy of a people who have done so much in other places have done little here the whole of that wilderness in which the later incidents of the legend occurred is nearly a wilderness still though the red man has entirely deserted this part of the state of all the tribes named in these pages there exist only a few half-civilized beings of the Unitas on the reservations of their people in new york the rest have disappeared either from the regions in which their fathers dwelt or altogether from the earth there is one point on which we would wish to say a word before closing this preface hawkeye calls the lac du saint sacrament the horican as we believe this to be an appropriation of the name that has its origin with ourselves the time has arrived perhaps when the fact should be frankly admitted while writing this book fully a quarter of a century since it occurred to us that the french name of this lake was too complicated the american too commonplace and the indian too unpronounceable for either to be used familiarly in a work of fiction looking over an ancient map it was ascertained that the, a tribe of indians called les horicans by the french existed in the neighborhood of this beautiful sheet of water as every word uttered by natty bumpo was not to be received as rigid truth we took the liberty of putting the horican into his mouth as the substitute for lake george the name has appeared to find favor and all things considered it may possibly be quite as well to let it stand instead of going back to the house of hanover for the appellation of our finest sheet of water we relieve our conscience by the confession all events leaving it to exercise its authority as it may see fit End of introduction this recording by gary w sherwin of yukon pennsylvania in the summer of 2007chapter one of the last of the mohicans a narrative of 1757 by james fenimore cooper this is a librivox recording
All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 1 Quote, Mine ear is open and my heart prepared. The worst is worldly loss thou canst unfold. Say, is my kingdom lost? Unquote. Shakespeare It was a feature peculiar to the colonial wars of North America that the toils and dangers of the wilderness were to be encountered before the adverse host could meet. A wide and apparently an impervious boundary of forest severed the possessions of the hostile provinces of France and England. The hardy colonist and the trained European who fought at his side frequently expended months in struggling against the rapids of the streams or in effecting the rugged passes of the mountains in quest of an opportunity to exhibit their courage in a more martial conflict. But, emulating the patience and self-denial of the practiced native warriors, they learned to overcome every difficulty, and it would seem that, in time, there was no recess of the woods so dark, nor any secret place so lovely, that it might claim exemption from the inroads of those who had pledged their blood to satiate their vengeance, or uphold the cold and selfish policy of the distant monarchs of Europe. Perhaps no district throughout the wide extent of the intermediate frontiers can furnish a livelier picture of the cruelty and fierceness of the savage warfare of those periods than the country which lies between the headwaters of the Hudson and the adjacent lakes. The facilities which nature had there offered to the march of the combatants were too obvious to be neglected. The lengthened sheet of the Champlain stretched from the frontiers of Canada deep within the borders of the neighboring province of New York, forming a natural passage across half the distance that the French were compelled to master in order to strike their enemies. Near its southern termination, it received the contributions of another lake, whose waters were so limpid as to have been exclusively selected by the Jesuit missionaries to perform the typical purification of baptism, and to obtain for it the title of Lake du Saint-Sacrement. The less zealous English thought they conferred a sufficient honor on its unsullied fountains when they bestowed the name of their reigning prince the second of the House of Hanover. The two united to rob the untutored possessors of its wooded scenery of their native right to perpetuate its original appellation of Horican. Footnote. As each nation of the Indians had its language or its dialect, they usually gave different names to the same places, though nearly all of their appellations were descriptive of the object. Thus, a literal translation of the name of this beautiful sheet of water used by the tribe that dwelt on its banks would be the tail of the lake. Lake George, as it is vulgarly and now indeed legally called, forms a sort of tail to Lake Champlain when viewed on the map. Hence the name. End of footnote. Winding its way among countless islands and embedded in mountains, the holy lake extended a dozen leagues still further to the south. 
with the high plain that there interposed itself to the further passage of water, commenced a portage of as many miles, which conducted the adventurer to the banks of the Hudson, at a point where the usual obstructions of the rapids, or rifts as they were termed in the language of the country, the river became navigable to the tide. While in the pursuit of their daring plans of annoyance, the restless enterprise of the French even attempted the distant and difficult gorges of the Allegheny. It may easily be imagined that their proverbial acuteness would not overlook the natural advantages of the district we have just described. It became, emphatically, the bloody arena in which most of the battles for the mastery of the colonies were contested. Forts were erected at the different points that commanded the facilities of the route, and were taken and retaken, raised and rebuilt, as victory alighted on the hostile batters, while the husbandmen shrank back from the dangerous passes within the safer boundaries of the more ancient settlements, armies larger than those that had often deposed of the scepters of the mother countries were seen to bury themselves in these forests, whence they rarely returned but in skeleton bands that were haggard with care or dejected by defeat. Though the arts of peace were unknown to this fatal region, its forests were alive with men, its shades and glens rang with the sounds of martial music, and the echoes of its mountains threw back the laugh or repeated the wanton cry of many a gallant and reckless youth as he hurried by them in the noontide of his spirits to slumber in a long night of forgetfulness. It was in this scene of strife and bloodshed that the incidents we shall attempt to relate occurred during the third year of the war which England and France last waged for the possession of a country that neither was destined to retain. The imbecility of her military leaders abroad and the fatal one of energy in her councils at home had lowered the character of Great Britain from the proud elevation on which it had been placed by the talents and enterprise of her former warriors and statesmen. No longer dreaded by her enemies, her servants were fast losing the confidence of self-respect. In this mortifying abasement, the colonists, though innocent of her imbecility, and too humble to be the agents of her blunders, were but the natural participators. They had recently seen a chosen army from that country, which, reverencing as a mother, they had blindly believed invincible. An army, led by a chief, who had been selected from a crowd of trained warriors for his rare military endowments, disgracefully routed by a handful of French and Indians, and only saved from annihilation by the coolness and spirit of a Virginia boy whose riper fame has since diffused itself with the steady influence of moral truth to the uttermost confines of Christendom. Footnote. Washington, who, after uselessly admonishing the European general of the danger into which he was heedlessly running, saved the remnants of the British army on this occasion by his decision and courage. The reputation earned by Washington in this battle was the principal cause of his being selected to command the American armies at a later day. 
it is a circumstance worthy of observation that while all America rang with his well-merited reputation, his name does not occur in any European account of the battle. At least the author has searched for it without success. In this manner does the mother country absorb even the fame under that system of rule. End footnote. A wide frontier had been laid naked by this unexpected disaster, and more substantial evils were preceded by a thousand fanciful and imaginary dangers. The alarmed colonists believed that the yells of the savages mingled with every fitful gust of wind that issued from the interminable forest of the West. The terrific character of their merciless enemies increased immeasurably the natural horrors of warfare. Numberless recent massacres were still vivid in their recollections, nor was there any ear in the provinces so deaf as not to have drunk in with avidity the narrative of some fearful tale of midnight murder, in which the natives of the forest were the principal and barbarous actors. As the credulous and excited traveller related the hazardous chances of the wilderness, the blood of the timid curdled with terror, and mothers cast anxious glances even at those children which slumbered within the security of the largest towns. In short, the magnifying influence of fear began to set at naught the calculations of reason, and to render those who should have remembered their manhood the slaves of the basest passions. Even the most confident and stoutest hearts began to think the issue of the contest was becoming doubtful, and that abject class was hourly increasing in numbers who thought they foresaw all the possessions of the English crown in America subdued by their Christian foes, or laid waste by the inroads of their relentless allies. When, therefore, intelligence was received at the fort which covered the southern termination of the portage between the Hudson and the lakes, that Montcalm had been seen moving up the Champlain, with an army, numerous as the leaves on the trees, its truth was admitted with more of the craven reluctance of fear than with the stern joy that a warrior should feel in finding an enemy within reach of his blow. The news had been brought, toward the decline of a day in midsummer, by an Indian runner, who also bore an urgent request from Monroe, the commander of a work on the shore of the Holy Lake, for a speedy and powerful reinforcement. It has already been mentioned that the distance between these two posts was less than five leagues. The rude path which originally formed their line of communication had been widened for the passage of wagons, so that the distance which had been traveled by the son of the forest in two hours might easily be effected by a detachment of troops with their necessary baggage between the rising and setting of a summer sun. The loyal servants of the British crown had given to one of these forest fastnesses the name of William Henry and to the other that of Fort Edward, calling each after a favorite prince of the reigning family. The veteran Scotchman just named held the first with a regiment of regulars and a few provincials, a force really by far too small to make head against the formidable power that Montcalm was leading to the foot 
of his earthen mounds. At the latter, however, lay General Webb, who commanded the armies of the king in the northern provinces, with a body of more than five thousand men. By uniting the several detachments of his command, this officer might have arrayed nearly double that number of combatants against the enterprising Frenchman, who had ventured so far from his reinforcements, with an army but little superior in numbers. But, under the influence of their degraded fortunes, both officers and men appeared better disposed to wait the approach of their formidable antagonists within their works, than to resist the progress of their march by emulating the successful example of the French at Fort Duquesne, and striking a blow on their advance. After the first surprise of the intelligence had a little abated, a rumor was spread through the entrenched camp which stretched along the margin of the Hudson, forming a chain of outworks to the body of the fort itself, that a chosen detachment of fifteen hundred men was to depart with the dawn for William Henry, the post at the northern extremity of the portage. That, which at first was only a rumor, soon became certainty. As orders passed from the quarters of the commander-in-chief to the several corps he had selected for his service to prepare for their speedy departure. All doubts as the intention of Webb now vanished, and an hour or two of hurried footsteps and anxious faces succeeded. The novice in the military art flew from point to point, retarding his own preparations by the excess of his violent and somewhat distempered zeal, while the more practiced veteran made his arrangements with the deliberation that scorned every appearance of haste. Though his sober lineaments and anxious eye sufficiently betrayed that he had no very strong professional relish for the yet untried and dreaded warfare of the wilderness. At length the sun set in a flood of glory behind the distant western hills, and as darkness drew its veil around the secluded spot, the sounds of preparation diminished. The last light finally disappeared from the log cabin of some officer. The trees cast their deeper shadows over the mounds and the rippling stream, and a silence soon pervaded the camp, as deep as that which reigned in the vast forest by which it was environed. According to the orders of the preceding night, the heavy sleep of the army was broken by the rolling of the warning drums, whose rattling echoes were heard issuing on the damp morning air out of every vista of the woods. Just as day began to draw the shaggy outlines of some tall pines of the vicinity on the opening brightness of a soft and cloudless eastern sky. In an instant the whole camp was in motion, the meanest soldier arising from his lair to witness the departure of his comrades, and to share the excitement and incidents of the hour. The simple array of the chosen band was soon completed. While the regular and trained hirelings of the king marched with haughtiness to the right of the line, the less pretending colonists took their humbler position on its left, with a docility that long practice had rendered easy. The scouts departed. Strong guards preceded and followed the lumbering vehicles that bore the baggage, and before the gray light of morning was mellowed by the rays of the sun, the main body of the combatants wheeled into column 
and left the encampment with a show of high military bearing that served to drown the slumbering apprehensions of many a novice who was now about to make his first essay in arms. While in view of their admiring comrades, the same proud front and ordered array was observed until the notes of their fifes growing fainter in distance, the forest at length appeared to swallow up the living mass which had slowly entered its bosom. The deepest sounds of the retiring and invisible column had ceased to be borne in the breeze of the listeners, and the latest straggler had already disappeared in pursuit, but there still remained the signs of another departure before a log cabin of unusual size and accommodations, in front of which those sentinels placed their rounds who were known to guard the person of the English general. At this spot were gathered some half-dozen horses, comparisoned in a manner which showed that two at least were destined to bear the persons of females of a rank that was not usual to meet so far in the wilds of the country. A third were trapping and arms of an officer of the staff, while the rest, from the plainness of the housing and the traveling mails with which they were encumbered, were evidently fitted for the reception of as many menials, who were seemingly already waiting the pleasure of those they served. At a respectful distance from this unusual show were gathered diverse groups of curious idlers, some admiring the blood and bone of the high-mettled military charger, and others gazing at the preparations with the dull wonder of vulgar curiosity. There was one man, however, who by his countenance and actions formed a marked exception to those who composed the latter class of spectators, being neither idle nor seemingly very ignorant. The person of this individual was to the last degree ungainly, without being in any particular manner deformed. He had all the bones and joints of other men, without any of their proportions. Erect, his stature surpassed that of his fellows. Though seated, he appeared reduced within the ordinary limits of the race. The same contrariety of his members seemed to exist throughout the whole man. His head was large, his shoulders narrow, his arms long and dangling, while his hands were small, if not delicate. His legs and thighs were thin, nearly to emaciation, but of extraordinary length. And his knees would have been considered tremendous, had they not been outdone by the broader foundation on which this false superstructure of blended human orders was so profanely reared. The ill-assorted and injudicious attire of the individual only served to render his awkwardness more conspicuous. A sky-blue coat with short and broad skirts, and a low cape exposed a long thin neck and longer and thinner legs to the worst animaversions of the evil disposed. His nether garment was a yellow nankeen, closely fitted to the shape, and tied at his bunches of knees by large knots of white ribbon, a good deal sullied by use. Clouded cotton stockings and shoes, on one of the latter of which was a plated spur, completed the costume of the lower extremity of this figure, no curve or angle of which was concealed, but on the other hand studiously exhibited through the vanity or simplicity of its owner. From beneath the flap of an enormous pocket of a soiled vest of embossed silk, heavily ornamented with tarnished silver lace, projected an instrument which from being seen in such martial company 
might have been easily mistaken for some mischievous and unknown implement of war. Small as it was, this uncommon engine had excited the curiosity of most of the Europeans in the camp. Though several of the provincials were seen to handle it, not only without fear, but with the utmost familiarity. A large, civil-cocked hat, like those worn by clergymen within the last thirty years, surmounted the whole, furnishing dignity to a good-natured and somewhat vacant countenance that apparently needed such artificial aid to support the gravity of some high and extraordinary trust. While the common herd stood aloof, in deference to the quarters of Webb, the figure we describe stalked into the center of the domestics, freely expressing his censures and commendations on the merits of the horses, as by chance they displeased or satisfied his judgment. This beast, I rather conclude, friend, is not of home-raising, but is from foreign lands, or perhaps from the little island itself over the blue water, he said, in a voice as remarkable for the softness and sweetness of its tones, as was his person for its rare proportions. I may speak of these things, and be no braggart, for I have been down at both havens, that which is situate at the mouth of Thames, and is named after the capital of old England, and that which is called Haven, with the addition of the word new, and have seen the scowls and brigantines collecting their droves, like the gathering to the ark, being outward bound to the island of Jamaica for the purpose of barter and traffic in four-footed animals. But never before have I beheld a beast which verified the true scripture war-horse like this. He paweth in the valley, and rejoiceth in his strength. He goeth on to meet the armed men. He saith among the trumpets, Ha-ha! And he smelleth the battle afar off. The thunder of the captains and the shouting. It would seem that the stock of the horse of Israel had descended to our time, would it not, friend? Receiving no reply to this extraordinary appeal, which, in truth, as it was delivered with the vigor of full and sonorous tones, merited some sort of notice, he who had thus sung forth the language of the holy book turned to the silent figure to whom he had unwittingly addressed himself, and found a new and more powerful subject of admiration in the object that encountered his gaze. His eyes fell on the still upright and rigid form of the Indian runner who had borne to the camp the unwelcome tidings of the preceding evening. Although in a state of perfect repose, and apparently disregarding, with characteristic stoicism, the excitement and bustle around him, there was a sullen fierceness mingled with the quiet of the savage, that was likely to arrest the attention of much more experienced eyes than those which now scanned him in unconcealed amazement. The native bore both the tomahawk and knife of his tribe, and yet his appearance was not altogether that of a warrior. On the contrary, there was an air of neglect about this person, like that which might have proceeded from great and recent exertion, which he had not yet found leisure to repair. The colors of the war-paint had blended in dark confusion about his fierce countenance, and rendered his swarthy lineaments still more savage and repulsive than if art had attempted an effect which had been thus produced by chance. His eye alone, which glistened like a fiery star amid lowering clouds, was to be seen in its state of native wildness. 
For a single instant, his searching and yet wary glance met the wondering look of the other, and then, changing its direction, partly in cunning and partly in disdain, it remained fixed as if penetrating the distant air. It is impossible to say what unlooked-for remark this short and silent communication between two such singular men might have elicited from the white man, had not his active curiosity been again drawn to other objects. A general movement among the domestics and a low sound of gentle voices announced the approach of those whose presence alone was wanted to enable the cavalcade to move. The simple admirer of the war-horse instantly fell back to a low, gaunt, switch-tailed mare, which was unconsciously gleaning the faded herbage of the camp nigh-by, where, leaning with one elbow on the blanket that concealed an apology for a saddle, he became a spectator of the departure, while a foal was quietly making its morning repast on the opposite side of the same animal. A young man, in the dress of an officer, conducted to their steeds two females, who, as it was apparent by their dresses, were prepared to encounter the fatigues of a journey in the woods. One, and she was the more juvenile in her appearance, though both were young, permitted glimpses of her dazzling complexion, fair golden hair, and bright blue eyes, to be caught as she artlessly suffered the morning air to blow aside the green veil which descended low from her beaver. The flush which still lingered above the pines of the western sky was not more bright nor delicate than the bloom of her cheek, nor was the opening day more cheering than the animated smile which she bestowed on the youth as he assisted her into the saddle. The other, who appeared to share equally in the attention of the young officer, concealed her charms from the gaze of the soldiery, with a care that seemed better fitted to the experience of four or five additional years. It could be seen, however, that her person, though moulded with the same exquisite proportions of which none of the graces were lost by the travelling dress she wore, was rather fuller and more mature than that of her companion. No sooner were these females seated than their attendants sprang lightly into the saddle of the war-horse when the whole three bowed to Webb, who in courtesy awaited their parting on the threshold of his cabin, and turning their horses' heads, they proceeded at a slow amble, followed by their train toward the northern entrance of the encampment. As they traversed that short distance, not a voice was heard among them, but a slight exclamation proceeded from the younger of the females, as the Indian runner glided by her unexpectedly, and led the way along the military road in her front. Though this sudden and startling movement of the Indian produced no sound from the other, in the surprise her veil also was allowed to open its folds, and betrayed an indescribable look of pity, admiration, and horror, as her dark eye followed the easy motions of the savage. The tresses of this lady were shining and black, like the plumage of a raven. Her complexion was not brown, but it rather appeared charged with the color of the rich blood that seemed ready to burst its bounds, and yet there was neither coarseness nor want of shadowing in a countenance that was exquisitely regular and dignified and surpassingly beautiful. 
she smiled as if in pity at her own momentary forgetfulness, discovering by the act a row of teeth that would have shamed the purest ivory. When replacing the veil, she bowed her face and rode in silence, like one whose thoughts were abstracted from the scene around her. End of chapter 1 This reading by Gary W. Sherwin of Yukon, Pennsylvania, in the summer of 2007. Chapter 2 of The Last of the Mohicans, a narrative of 1757 by James Fenimore Cooper. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 2 Quote, Sola, sola, wo, ha, ho, sola. Unquote. By Shakespeare. While one of the lovely beings we have so curiously presented to the reader was thus lost in thought, the other quickly recovered from the alarm which had induced the exclamation, and, laughing at her own weakness, she inquired of the youth who rode by her side, Are such spectres frequent in the woods, Hayward? Or is this sight an especial entertainment, ordered on our behalf? If the latter, gratitude must close our mouths. But if the former, both Cora and I shall have need to draw largely on that stock of hereditary courage which we boast, even before we were made to encounter the redoubtable Montcalm. Yon Indian is a runter of the army, and after the fashion of his people, he may be accounted a hero, returned the officer. He has volunteered to guide us to the lake, by a path but little known, sooner than if we followed the tardy movements of the column, and, by consequence, more agreeably. I like him not, said the lady, shuddering, partly in assumed yet more in real terror. You know him, Duncan, or would you not trust yourself so freely to his keeping? Say rather, Alice, that I would not trust you. I do know him, or he would not have my confidence, and least of all at this moment. He is said to be a Canadian, too, and yet he served with our friends the Mohawks, who, as you know, are one of the six allied nations. He was brought among us, as I have heard, by some strange accident in which your father was interested, and in which the savage was rigidly dealt by. But I forget the idle tale. It is enough he is now our friend. If he has been my father's enemy, I like him still less, exclaimed the now really anxious girl. Will you not speak to him, Major Hayward, that I may hear his tones? Foolish though it may be, you have often heard me avow my faith in the tones of the human voice. It would be in vain, and answered most probably by an ejaculation. Though he may understand it, he affects like most of his people to be ignorant of the English. And least of all will he condescend to speak it now that the war demands the utmost exercise of his dignity. But he stops. The private path by which we are to journey is doubtless at hand. The conjecture of Major Hayward was true. When they reached the spot where the Indians stood pointing into the thicket that fringed the military road, 
a narrow and blind path, which might with some little inconvenience receive one person at a time, became visible. "'Here, then, lies our way,' said the young man in a low voice. "'Manifest no distrust, or you may invite the danger you appear to apprehend.' "'Cora, what think you?' asked the reluctant fair one. "'If we journey with the troops, though we may find their presence irksome, shall we not feel better assurance of our safety?' "'Being little accustomed to the practices of the savages, Alice, "'you mistake the place of real danger,' said Hayward. "'If enemies have reached the portage at all, "'a thing by no means probable, as our scouts are abroad, "'they will surely be found skirting the column "'where scalps abound most. "'The route of the detachment is known, "'while ours, having been determined within the hour, "'must still be secret. "'Should we distrust the man?' "'Because his manners are not our manners, and that his skin is dark?' coldly asked Cora. Alice hesitated no longer, but giving her Narragansett a smart cut of the whip, she was the first to dash aside the slight branches of the bushes, and to follow the runner along the dark entangled pathway. Footnote. In the state of Rhode Island there is a bay called Narragansett, so named after a powerful tribe of Indians which formerly dwelt on its banks. Accident? or one of those unaccountable freaks which nature sometimes plays in the animal world, gave rise to a breed of horses which were once well known in America, and distinguished by their habit of pacing. Horses of this race were, and are still, in much request as saddle horses, on account of their hardiness and the ease of their movements. As they were also sure of foot, the Narragansett were greatly sought for by females who were obliged to travel over the roots and holes in the new countries. End of footnote. The young man regarded the last speaker in open admiration, and even permitted her fairer, though certainly not more beautiful companion, to proceed unattended, while he sedulously opened the way himself for the passage of her who has been called Cora. It would seem that the domestics had been previously instructed, for, instead of penetrating the thicket, they followed the route of the column, a measure which Hayward stated had been dictated by the sagacity of their guide in order to diminish the marks of their trail, if, haply, the Canadian savages should be lurking so far in advance of their army. For many minutes the intricacy of the route admitted of no further dialogue after which they emerged from the broad border of underbrush which grew along the line of the highway, and entered under the high but dark arches of the forest. Here their progress was less interrupted, and the instant the guide perceived that the females could command their steeds, he moved on at a pace between a trot and a walk, and at a rate which kept the sure-footed and peculiar animals they rode at a fast yet easy amble. The youth had turned to speak to the dark-eyed Cora, when the distant sound of horses' hoofs, clattering over the roots of the broken way in its rear, caused him to check his charger, and, as his companions drew their reins at the same instant, the whole party came to a halt, in order to obtain an explanation of the unlooked-for interruption. In a few moments a colt was seen gliding like a fallow deer among the straight trunks of the pines, and in another instant the person of the ungainly man described in the preceding chapter came into view, with as much rapidity as he could excite his meagre beast to endure, without coming to an open rupture. Until now, his personage had escaped the observation of the travellers, 
if he possessed the power to arrest any wandering eye when exhibiting the glories of his altitude on foot, his equestrian graces were still more likely to attract attention. Notwithstanding a constant application of his one-armed heel to the flanks of the mare, the most confirmed gait that he could establish was a Canterbury gallop with the hind legs, in which those more forward assisted for doubtful moments, and generally content to maintain a loping trot. Perhaps the rapidity of the changes from one of these paces to the other created an optical illusion, which might thus magnify the powers of the beast. For it is certain that Hayward, who possessed a true eye for the merits of a horse, was unable with his utmost ingenuity to decide by what sort of movement his pursuer worked his sinuous way on his footsteps with such persevering hardihood. The industry and the movements of the rider were not less remarkable than those of the ridden. At each change in the evolutions of the latter, the former raised his tall person in the stirrups, producing in this matter, by the undue elongation of his legs, such sudden growths and diminishings of the stature, as baffled every conjecture that might be made as to his dimensions. If to this be added the fact, in consequence of the ex parte application of the spur, one side of the emir appeared to journey faster than the other, and that the aggrieved flank was resolutely indicated by unremitted flourishes of a bushy tail. We finish the picture of both horse and man. The frown which had gathered around the handsome, open, and manly brow of Hayward gradually relaxed, and his lips curled into a slight smile as he regarded the stranger. Alice made no very powerful effort to control her merriment, and even the dark, thoughtful eye of Cora lighted with the humor that it would seem the habit rather than nature of its mistress repressed. "'Seek you any here?' demanded Hayward, when the other had arrived sufficiently nigh to abate his speed. "'I trust you are no messenger of evil tidings?' "'Even so,' replied the stranger, making diligent use of his triangular caster to produce a circulation in the close air of the woods, and leaving his hearers in doubt to which of the young man's questions he responded. When, however, he had cooled his face and recovered his breath, he continued, "'I hear you are riding to William Henry. As I am journeying thitherward myself, I concluded good company would seem consistent to the wishes of both parties.' "'You appear to possess the privilege of a casting vote,' returned Hayward. "'We are three while you have consulted no one but yourself. "'Even so, the first point to be obtained is to know one's own mind. "'One sure of that, and where women are concerned it is not easy. "'The next is to act up to the decision. "'I have endeavored to do both, and here I am. If you make the journey to the lake, you have mistaken your route, said Hayward haughtily. The highway thither is least a half a mile behind you. Even so, replied the stranger, nothing daunted by his cold reception. I have tarried at Edward a week, and I should be dumb not to have inquired the road I was to journey. And if dumb, there would be an end to my calling. After simpering in a small way, like one whose modesty prohibited a more open expression of his admiration of a witticism that was perfectly unintelligible to his hearers, he continued, "'Is it not prudent for any one of my profession to be too familiar with those he has to instruct, for which reason I follow not the line of the army? Besides which, 
I conclude that a gentleman of your character is the best judgment in matters of wayfaring. I have therefore decided to join company, in order that the ride may be made agreeable and partake of social communion. A most arbitrary, if not a hasty decision, exclaimed Hayward, undecided whether to give vent to his growing anger or to laugh in the other's face. But you speak of instruction, and of a profession. Are you an adjunct to the provincial corps, as a master of the noble science of defense and offense, or perhaps you are the one who draws lines and angles under the pretense of expounding the mathematics? The stranger regarded his interrogator for a moment in wonder, and then, losing every mark of self-satisfaction, in an expression of solemn humility, he answered, Of offense I hope there is none to either party. Of defense I make none. By God's good mercy, having committed no palpable sin since last entreating his pardon and grace, I understand not your illusions about lines and angles, and I leave expounding to those who have been called and set apart for that holy office. I lay claim to no higher gift than a small insight into the glorious art of petitioning and thanksgiving as practice in psalmody. This man is most manifestly a disciple of Apollo, cried the amused Alice, and I take him under my own especial protection. Nay, throw aside that frown, Hayward, and in pity to my longing ears, suffer him to journey in our trade. Besides, she added in a low and hurried voice, casting a glance at the distant Cora, who slowly followed the footsteps of their silent but sullen guide, it may be a friend added to our strength in the time of need. Think you, Alice, that I would trust those I love by this secret path? Did I imagine such need could happen? Nay, nay, I think not of it now. But this strange man amuses me, and if he hath music in his soul, let us not curlishly reject his company. She pointed persuasively along the path with her riding-whip, while her eyes met in a look which the young men lingered a moment to prolong. Then, yielding to her gentle influence, he clapped his spurs to his charger, and in a few bounds was again at the side of Cora. "'I am glad to encounter thee, friend,' continued the maiden, waving her hand to the stranger to proceed, as she urged her Narragansett to renew its amble. "'Partial relatives have almost persuaded me that I am not entirely worthless in a duet myself, and we may enliven our wayfaring by indulging in our favorite pursuit. It might be of signal advantage to one ignorant as I to hear the opinions and experience of a master of the art.' It is refreshing both to the spirits and the body to indulge in psalmody, in befitting seasons, returned the master of song, unhesitatingly complying with her intimation to follow, and nothing would relieve the mind more than such a consoling communion. But four parts are altogether necessary for the perfection of melody. You have all the manifestations of a soft and rich treble. I can by a special aid carry a full tenor to the highest letter but we lack counter and base. Yon officer of the king who hesitated to admit me to his company might fill the letter, if one may judge from the intonations of his voice in common dialogue. Judge not too rashly from hasty and deceptive appearances, said the lady, smiling. Though Major Hayward can assume such deep notes on occasion, believe me, his natural tones are better fitted to a mellow tenor than the bass you heard. Is he, then, much practiced in the art of psalmody? demanded her simple companion. Alice felt disposed to laugh, 
though she succeeded in suppressing her merriment ere she answered. I apprehend that he is rather addicted to profane song. The chances of a soldier's life are but little fitted to the encouragement of more sober inclinations. Man's voice was given to him, like his other talents, to be used, and not to be abused. None can say they have ever known me to neglect my gifts. I am thankful that through my boyhood may be said to have been set apart, like the youth of the royal David for the purposes of music. No syllable of rude verse has ever profaned my lips. You have then limited your efforts to sacred song? Even so, as the psalms of David exceed all other language, so does the psalmody that has been fitted to them by the divines and sages of the land surpass all vain poetry. Happily, I may say, that I utter nothing but the thoughts and wishes of the king of Israel himself. For though the times may call for some slight changes, yet does this version which we use in the colonies of New England so much exceed all other versions that by its richness, its exactness, and its spiritual simplicity, it approaches as near as may be the great work of the inspired writer. I never abide in any place, sleeping or waking, without an example of this gifted work. Tis the sixth and twentieth edition, promulgated at Boston, Año Domini, 1744, and is entitled, The Psalms, Hymns, and Spiritual Songs of the Old and New Testaments, faithfully translated into English meter for the use, edification, and comfort of the saints, in public and private, especially in New England. During his eulogium on the rare production of his native poets, the stranger had drawn the book from his pocket, and fitting a pair of iron-rimmed spectacles to his nose, opened the volume with a care and veneration suited to its sacred purposes. Then, without circumlocution or apology, first pronounced the word Standish, and placing the unknown engine already described to his mouth, from which he drew a high shrill sound, that was followed by an octave below from his own voice, he commenced singing the following words in full, sweet, and melodious tones, that set the music, the poetry, and even the uneasy motion of his ill-trained beast at defiance. How good it is, O sea, and how it pleaseth well, together e'en in unity, for brethren so to dwell. It's like the choice ointment, from the head to the beard did go, down Aaron's head that downward went, his garment skirts unto. The delivery of these skilful rhymes was accompanied on the part of the stranger by a regular rise and fall of his right hand, which terminated at the descent by suffering the fingers to dwell a moment on the leaves of the little volume, and on ascent by a flourish of the member, as none but the initiated might ever hope to imitate. It would seem long practice had rendered this manual accompaniment necessary, for it did not cease until the proposition which the poet had selected for the close of his verse had been duly delivered, like a word of two syllables. Such an innovation on the silence and the retirement of the forest could not fail to enlist the ears of those who journeyed at so short a distance in advance. The Indian muttered a few words in broken English to Hayward, who in his turn spoke to the stranger, at once interrupting and for the time closing his musical efforts. Though we are not in danger, common prudence would teach us to journey through this wilderness in as quiet a manner as possible. You will then pardon me, Alice, should I diminish your enjoyments, 
by requesting this gentleman to postpone his chant until a safer opportunity. "'You will diminish them, indeed,' returned the arch-girl, "'for never did I hear a more unworthy conjunction of execution and language than that to which I have been listening. And I was far gone in a learned inquiry into the causes of such an unfitness between sound and sense when you broke the charm of my musing by that base of yours, Duncan.' "'I know not what you call my base,' said Hayward, piqued at her remark, "'but I know that your safety in that of Corr is far dearer to me than could be any orchestra of Handel's music.' He paused and turned his head quickly toward a thicket, and then bent his eyes suspiciously on their guide, who continued his steady pace in undisturbed gravity. The young man smiled to himself, for he believed he had mistaken some shining berry of the woods for the glistening eyeballs of a prowling savage, as he rode forward continuing the conversation which had been interrupted by the passing thought. Major Hayward was mistaken only in suffering his youthful and generous pride to suppress his act of watchfulness. The cavalcade had not long passed before the branches of the bushes that formed the thicket were cautiously moved asunder, and a human visage as fiercely wild as savage art and unbridled passions could make it peered out on the retiring footsteps of the travelers. A gleam of exultation shot across the darkly painted lineaments of the inhabitant of the forest, as he traced the route of his intended victims, who rode unconsciously onward, the light and graceful forms of the females waving among the trees in the curvatures of their path, followed at each bend by the manly figure of Hayward, until finally the shapeless person of the singing master was concealed behind the numberless trunks of trees that rose in dark lines in the intermediate space. End of chapter 2 This reading by Gary W. Sherwin of Yukon, Pennsylvania, in the summer of 2007. Chapter 3 of The Last of the Mohicans A Narrative of 1757 by James Fenimore Cooper. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 3 Quote, Before these fields were shorn and tilled, full to the brim our rivers flowed, the melody of waters filled the fresh and boundless wood, and torrents dashed, and rivulets played, and fountains spouted in the shade. Unquote. By Bryant. Leaving the unsuspecting Hayward and his confiding companions to penetrate still deeper into a forest that contained such treacherous inmates, we must use an author's privilege and shift the scene a few miles to the westward of the place where we have last seen them. On that day, two men were lingering on the banks of a small but rapid stream, within an hour's journey of the encampment of Webb, like those who awaited the appearance of an absent person, or the approach of some expected event. The vast canopy of woods spread itself to the margin of the river, overhanging the water, and shadowing its dark current with a deeper hue. The rays of the sun were beginning to grow less fierce, and the intense heat of the day was lessened, as the cooler vapors of the springs and fountains rose above their leafy beds, and rested in the atmosphere. Still, 
that breathing silence which marks the drowsy sultriness of an American landscape in July, pervaded the secluded spot, interrupted only by the low voices of the men, the occasional and lazy tap of a woodpecker, the discordant cry of some gaudy jay, or a swelling on the ear from the dull roar of a distant waterfall. These feeble and broken sounds were, however, too familiar to the foresters to draw their attention from the more interesting matter of their dialogue. While one of these loiterers showed the red skin and wild accoutrements of a native of the woods, the other exhibited, through the mask of his rude and nearly savage equipments, the brighter, though sunburned, and long-faced complexion of one who might claim descent from a European parentage. The former was seated on the end of a mossy log, in a posture that permitted him to heighten the effect of his earnest language by the calm but expressive gestures of an Indian engaged in debate. His body, which was nearly naked, presented a terrific emblem of death, drawn in intermingled colors of white and black. His closely shaved head, on which no other hair than the well-known and chivalrous scalping tuft was preserved, was without ornament of any kind. With the exception of a solitary eagle's plume, that crossed his crown and depended over the left shoulder. Footnote. The North American warrior caused the hair to be plucked from his whole body. A small tuft was left on the crown of his head, in order that his enemy might avail himself of it in the wrenching off the scalp in the event of his fall. The scalp was the only admissible trophy of victory. Thus, it was deemed more important to obtain the scalp than to kill the man. Some tribes laid great stress on the honor of striking a dead body. These practices have nearly disappeared among the Indians of the Atlantic States. End footnote. A tomahawk and scalping knife of English manufacture were in his girdle, while a short military rifle of that sort with which the policy of the whites armed their savage allies lay carelessly across his bare and sinewy knee. The expanded chest, full-formed limbs, and grave countenance of this warrior would denote that he had reached the vigor of his days, though no symptoms of decay appeared to have yet weakened his manhood. The frame of the white man, judging from such parts as were not concealed by his clothes, was like that of one who had known hardships and exertion from his earliest youth. His person, though muscular, was rather attenuated than full, but every nerve and muscle appeared strung and indurated by unremitted exposure and toil. He wore a hunting shirt of forest green, fringed with faded yellow, and a summer cap of skins, which had been shorn of their fur. Footnote. The hunting shirt is a picturesque smock frock, being shorter and ornamented with fringes and tassels. The colors are intended to imitate the hues of the wood, with a view to concealment. Many corps of American riflemen have been thus attired, and the dress is one of the most striking of modern times. The hunting shirt is frequently white. He also bore a knife in a girdle of wampum, like that which confined the scanty garments of the Indian, but no tomahawk. 
His moccasins were ornamented after the gay fashion of the natives, while the only part of his underdress which appeared below the hunting frock was a pair of buckskin leggings that laced at the sides and which were gartered above the knees with the sinews of a deer. A pouch and horn completed his personal accoutrements, though a rifle of great length, which the theory of the more ingenious whites had taught them was the most dangerous of all firearms, leaned against a neighboring sapling. Footnote. The rifle of the army is short. That of the hunter is always long. End footnote. The eye of the hunter or scout, whichever he might be, was small, quick, keen, and restless, roving while he spoke on every side of him, as if in quest of game or distrusting the sudden approach of some lurking enemy. Notwithstanding the symptoms of habitual suspicion, his countenance was not only without guile, but at the moment at which he is introduced, it was charged with an expression of sturdy honesty. "'Even your traditions make the case in my favor, Chinchgotchcook,' he said, speaking in the tongue which was known to all the natives who formerly inhabited the country between the Hudson and the Potomac, and of which we shall give a free translation for the benefit of the reader, endeavoring at the same time to preserve some of the peculiarities both of the individual and of the language. "'Your fathers came from the setting sun, crossed the big river, fought the people of the country,' and took the land, and mine came from the red sky of the morning, over the salt lake, and did their work much after the fashion that had been set them by yours. Then let God judge the matter between us, and friends spare their words. Footnote. The Mississippi. The scout alludes to a tradition which is very popular among the tribes of the Atlantic states. Evidence of their Asiatic origin is deduced from the circumstances, though great uncertainty hangs over the whole history of the Indians. End footnote. My fathers fought with the naked red man, returned the Indian, sternly in the same language. Is there no difference, Hawkeye, between the stone-headed arrow of the warrior and the leaden bullet with which you kill? There is reason in an Indian, though nature has made him with a red skin, said the white man, shaking his head like one on whom such an appeal to his justice was not thrown away. For a moment he appeared to be conscious of having the worst of the argument. Then, rallying again, he answered the objection of his antagonist in the best manner his limited information would allow. I am no scholar, and I care not who knows it. But, judging from what I have seen at deer chases and squirrel hunts, of the sparks below, I should think a rifle in the hands of their grandfathers was not so dangerous as a hickory bow and a good flint head might be, if drawn with Indian judgment and sent by an Indian eye. "'You have told the story told by your fathers,' returned the other coldly, waving his hand. "'What say, your old men? Do they tell the young warriors that the pale faces met the red men?' painted for war and armed with the stone hatchet and wooden gun. I am not a prejudiced man, nor one who vaunts himself on his natural privileges, though the worst enemy I have on earth, and he is an Iroquois, daren't deny I am genuine white, the scout replied. 
surveying with secret satisfaction the faded color of his bony and sinewy hand. And I'm willing to own that my people have many ways of which, as an honest man, I can't approve. It is one of their customs to write in books what they have done and seen, instead of telling them in their villages, where the lie can be given to the face of a cowardly boaster, and a brave soldier can call on his comrades to witness for the truth of his words. In consequence of this bad fashion, a man who is too conscientious to misspend his days among the women in learning the names of black marks, may never hear the deeds of his fathers, nor feel a pride in striving to outdo them. For myself, I conclude the bumpos could shoot, for I have a natural turn with a rifle, which must have been handed down from generation to generation. As our holy commandments tell us, all good and evil gifts are bestowed, though I should be loath to answer for other people in such a matter. But every story has its two sides. So I ask you, Chingachgook, what passed according to the traditions of the red men when our fathers first met? A silence of a minute succeeded, during which the Indian sat mute. Then, full of the dignity of his office, he commenced his brief tale with a solemnity that served to heighten its appearance of truth. Listen, Hawkeye, and your ear shall drink no lie. Tis what my fathers have said, and what the Mohicans have done. He hesitated a single instant, and bending a cautious glance toward his companion, he continued in a manner that was divided between interrogation and assertion. Does not this stream at our feet run toward the summer until its waters grow salt and the current flows upward? It can't be denied that your traditions tell you true in both these matters, said the white man, for I have been there and have seen them, though why water, which is so sweet in the shade, should become bitter in the sun, is an alteration for which I have never been able to account. And the current? demanded the Indian, who expected his reply with that sort of interest that a man feels in the confirmation of testimony, at which he marvels even while he respects it. The fathers of Chingachgook have not lied. The Holy Bible is not more true, and that is the truest thing in nature. They call this upstream current the tide, which is a thing soon explained, and clear enough. Six hours the waters run in, and six hours they run out. And the reason is this. When there is higher water in the sea than in the river, they run in, until the river gets to be highest, and then it runs out again. The waters in the woods and on the great lakes run downward until they lie like my hand, said the Indian, stretching the limb horizontally before him, and then they run no more. No honest man will deny it, said the scout, a little nettled at the implied distrust of his explanation on the mystery of the tides. And I grant that it is true on the small scale and where the land is level. But... 
everything depends on what scale you look at things. Now, on the small scale, the earth is level, but on the large scale, it is round. In this manner, pools and ponds, and even the great freshwater lakes, may be stagnant, as you and I both know they are, having seen them. But when you come to spread water over a great tract like the sea, where the earth is round, how in reason can the water be quiet? You might as well expect the river to lie still on the brink of those black rocks a mile above us, though our own ears tell you that it is tumbling over them at this very moment. If unsatisfied by the philosophy of his companion, the Indian was far too dignified to betray his unbelief. He listened like one who was convinced, and resumed his narrative in his former solemn manner. We came from the place where the sun is hid at night, over great plains, where the buffaloes live, until we reached the big river. There we fought the Aligui, till the ground was red with their blood. From the banks of the big river to the shores of the salt lake, there was none to meet us. The Maquas followed at a distance. We said the country should be ours, from the place where the water runs up no longer on this stream, to a river twenty suns' journey toward the summer. We drove the Maquas into the woods with the bears. They only tasted salt at the licks. They drew no fish from the great lake. We threw them the bones. All this I have heard and believe, said the white man, observing that the Indian paused. But it was long before the English came into the country. A pine grew then, where this chestnut now stands. The first pale faces who came among us spoke no English. They came in a large canoe, when my fathers had buried the tomahawk with the red men around them. Then Hawkeye, he continued, betraying his deep emotion only by permitting his voice to fall to those low guttural tones which render his language as spoken at times so very musical. Then, Hawkeye, we were one people, and we were happy. The salt lake gave us its fish, the wood its deer, and the air its birds. We took wives who bore us children. We worshipped the Great Spirit, and we kept the Maquas beyond the sound of our songs of triumph. "'Know you anything of your own family at that time?' demanded the white. "'But you are just a man for an Indian, and I suppose you hold their gifts. Your fathers must have been brave warriors, and wise men at the council fire. My tribe is the grandfather of nations, but I am an unmixed man. The blood of chiefs is in my veins, where it must stay forever. The Dutch landed and gave my people the fire-water. They drank until the heavens and earth seemed to meet, and they foolishly thought they had found the Great Spirit. Then they parted with their land. Foot by foot they were driven back from the shores, until I, that am a chief and a sagamore, have never seen the sunshine but through the trees and have never visited the graves of my fathers. 
Graves bring solemn feelings over the mind, returned the scout, a good deal touched at the calm suffering of his companion, and they often aid a man in his good intentions. Though, for myself, I expect to leave my own bones unburied, to bleach in the woods, or be torn asunder by the wolves. But where are to be found those of your race who came to their kin in the Delaware country so many summers since? Where are the blossoms of those summers? Fallen, one by one. So all of my family departed, each in his turn, to the land of spirits. I am on the hilltop, and must go down into the valley. And when Uncas follows in my footsteps, there will no longer be any of the blood of the Sagamores, for my boy is the last of the Mohicans. Uncas is here, said another voice in the same soft guttural tones near his elbow. Who speaks for Uncas? The white man loosened his knife in his leathern sheath, and made an involuntary movement of the hand toward his rifle at this sudden interruption. But the Indian sat composed and without turning his head at the unexpected sounds. At the next instant a youthful warrior passed between them with a noiseless step, and seated himself on the bank of the rapid stream. No exclamation of surprise escaped the father nor was any question asked, or reply given, for several minutes, each appearing to await the moment when he might speak, without betraying womanish curiosity or childish impatience. The white man seemed to take counsel from their customs, and, relinquishing his grasp of the rifle, he also remained silent and reserved. At length, Chingachgook turned his eyes slowly toward his son, and demanded, Do the Maquas dare to leave the print of their moccasins in these woods? I have been on their trail, replied the young Indian, and know that they number as many as the fingers of my two hands. But they lie hid like cowards. The thieves are outlying for scalps and plunder, said the white man, whom we shall call Hawkeye, after the manner of his companions. That busy Frenchman, Montcalm, will send his spies into our very camp. But he will know what road we travel. "'Tis enough,' returned the father, glancing his eye toward the setting sun. "'They shall be driven like deer from their bushes. Hawkeye, let us eat to-night, and show the Maquas that we are men to-morrow. I am as ready to do one as the other.' But to fight the Iroquois, tis necessary to find the skulkers. And to eat, tis necessary to get the game. Talk of the devil, and he will come. There's a pair of the biggest antlers I have seen this season, moving the bushes below the hill. Now, Uncas, he continued in a half-whisper, and laughing with a kind of inward sound, like one who had learned to be watchful, I will bet my charger three times full of powder, against a foot of wampum, that I take him atwixt the eyes, and nearer to the right than the left. It cannot be, said the young Indian, springing to his feet with youthful eagerness. Oh, but the tips of his horns are hid. 
"'He's a boy,' said the white man, shaking his head while he spoke, and addressing the father. "'Does he think, when a hunter sees a part of a creature, he can't tell where the rest of him should be?' Adjusting his rifle, he was about to make an exhibition of that skill on which he so much valued himself, when the warrior struck up the piece with his hand, saying, "'Hawkeye, will you fight the Maquas?' "'These Indians know the nature of the woods, as it might be, by instinct,' returned the scout, dropping his rifle and turning away, like a man convinced of his error. "'I must leave the buck to your arrow, Uncas, or we may kill a deer for them thieves, the Iroquois, to eat.' The instant the father seconded this intimation, by an expressive gesture of the hand, Uncas threw himself on the ground, and approached the animal, with weary movements. When within a few yards of the cover, he fitted an arrow to his bow with the utmost care, while the antlers moved as if their owner snuffed an enemy in the tainted air. In another moment the twang of the cord was heard, a white streak was seen glancing into the bushes, and the wounded buck plunged from the cover to the very feet of his hidden enemy. Avoiding the horns of the infuriated animal, Uncas darted to his side, and passed his knife across the throat. When bounding to the edge of the river it fell, dyeing the water with its blood. "'Twas done with Indian skill,' said the scout, laughing inwardly, but with vast satisfaction. "'And twas a pretty sight to behold, though an arrow is a near shot, and needs a knife to finish the work.' Huh! ejaculated his companion, turning quickly like a hound who scented game. "'By the Lord, there's a drove of them!' exclaimed the scout, whose eyes began to glisten with the ardor of his usual occupation. "'If they come within range of a bullet, I will drop one, though the whole six nations should be lurking within sound. What do you hear, Chinchgotchcook? For to my ears the woods are dumb.' "'There is but one deer, and he is dead,' said the Indian." bending his body to his ear nearly touched the earth. I hear the sounds of feet. Perhaps the wolves have driven the buck to shelter, and are following on his trail. No, the horses of white men are coming, returned the other, raising himself with dignity, and resuming his seat on the log with his former composure. Hawkeye, they are your brothers. Speak to them. That I will and in English that the king needn't be ashamed to answer, returned the hunter, speaking in the language of which he boasted. But I see nothing, nor do I hear the sounds of man or beast. Tis strange that an Indian should understand white sounds, better than a man who his very enemies will own has no cross in his blood. Although he may have lived with the redskins long enough to be suspected. Ha! There goes something like the crackling of a dry stick, too. Now I hear the bushes move. Yes, yes, there is a trampling that I mistook for the falls, and— But here they come themselves. God keep them from the Iroquois. End of chapter 3 This recording by Gary W. Sherwin of Yukon, Pennsylvania, in the summer of 2007
This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 4 Quote, Well, go thy way, thou shalt not from this grove, till I torment thee for this injury. Unquote. Midsummer Night's Dream The words were still in the mouth of the scout when the leader of the party, whose approaching footsteps had caught the vigilant ear of the Indian, came openly into view. A beaten path, such as those made by the periodical passage of deer, wound through a little glen at no great distance, and struck the river at the point where the white man and his red companions had posted themselves. Along this track, the travelers who had produced a surprise so unusual in the depths of the forest, advanced slowly toward the hunter, who was in front of his associates, in readiness to receive them. "'Who comes?' demanded the scout, throwing his rifle carelessly across his left arm, and keeping the forefinger of his right hand on the trigger, though he avoided all appearance of menace in the act. Who comes hither through the beast and dangers of the wilderness? Believers in religion, and friends of the law and to the king, returned he who rode foremost. Men who have journeyed since the rising sun in the shades of this forest, without nourishment, and are sadly tired of their wayfaring. You are then lost, interrupted the hunter, and have found how helpless tis not to know whether to take the right hand or the left? Even so... Sucking babes are not more dependent on those who guide them than we who are of larger growth, and who may now be said to possess the stature without the knowledge of men. Know you the distance to a post of the crown called William Henry? <laughs> shouted the scout, who did not spare his open laughter, though instantly checking the dangerous sound he indulged, his merriment, at risk of being overhead by any lurking enemies. You are as much off the scent as a hound would be, with Horican atwixt him and the deer. William Henry, man, if you are friends to the king and have business with the army, your way would be to follow the river down to Edward and lay the matter before Webb who tarries there, instead of pushing into the defiles and driving this saucy Frenchman back across Champlain into his den again. Before the stranger could make any reply to this unexpected proposition, another horseman dashed the bushes aside, and leaped his charger into the pathway in front of his companion. "'What then may be our distance from Fort Edward?' demanded a new speaker. "'The place you advise us to seek we left this morning, and our destination is the head of the lake. Then you must have lost your eyesight afore losing your way, for the road across the portage is cut to a good two rods, and is as grand as a path, I calculate, as any that runs into London, or even before the palace of the king himself. "'We will not dispute concerning the excellence of the passage,' returned Hayward, smiling, for, as the reader has anticipated, it was he. "'It was enough for the present that we trusted to an Indian guide to take us by a nearer though blinder path, and that we are deceived in his knowledge.' In plain words, we know not where we are. An Indian lost in the woods, said the scout, shaking his head doubtingly. When the sun is scorching the treetops, 
and the watercourses are full, when the moss on every beach he sees will tell him in what quarter the north star will shine at night, the woods are full of deer paths which run to the streams and licks, places well known to everybody, nor have the geese done their flight to the Canada waters altogether. Tis strange that an Indian should be lost atwixt Horrigan and the bend in the river. Is he a Mohawk? Not by birth, though adopted by that tribe. I think his birthplace was farther north, and he is one of those you call Huron. Huh! exclaimed the two companions of the scout, who had continued until this part of the dialogue, seated immovable, and apparently indifferent to what passed, but who now sprang to their feet with an activity and interest that had evidently got the better of their reserve by surprise. "'A Huron?' repeated the sturdy scout, once more shaking his head in open distrust. "'They are a thievish race, nor do I care by whom they are adopted. You can never make anything of them but skulls and vagabonds.' Since you trusted yourself to the care of one of that nation, I only wonder that you have not fallen in with more. Of that there is little danger, since William Henry is so many miles in our front. You forgot that I have told you our guide is now a Mohawk, and that he serves with our forces as a friend. And I tell you that he who is born a Mingo will die a Mingo, returned the other positively. A Mohawk? No, give me a Delaware or a Mohican for honesty, and when they will fight, which they won't all do, having suffered their cunning enemies the Maquas to make them women, but when they will fight at all, look to a Delaware or a Mohican for a warrior. Enough of this, said Hayward impatiently. I wish not to inquire into the character of a man that I know, and to whom you must be a stranger. You have not yet answered my question. What is our distance from the main army at Edward? It seems that may depend on who is your guide. One would think such a horse as that might get over a good deal of ground atwixt sun-up and sundown. I wish no contention of idle words with you, friend, said Hayward, curbing his dissatisfied manner, and speaking in a more gentle voice. If you will tell me the distance to Fort Edward— and conduct me thither, your labor shall not go without its reward. And in doing so, how know I that I don't guide an enemy and a spy of Montcalm to the works of the army? It is not every man who can speak the English tongue that is an honest subject. If you serve with the troops of whom I judge you to be a scout, you should know of such a regiment of the king as the 60th. The 60th! You can tell me little of the Royal Americans that I don't know, though I do wear a hunting shirt instead of a scarlet jacket. Well, then, among other things, you may know the name of its major. Its major, interrupted the hunter, elevating his body like one who was proud of his trust. If there is a man in the country who knows Major Effingham, he stands before you. It is a corps which has many majors. The gentleman you name is the senior but I speak of the junior of them all, he who commands the companies in garrison at William Henry. Yes, yes, I have heard that a young gentleman of vast riches from one of the provinces far south 
has got the place. He is over young, too, to hold such rank, and to be put above men whose heads are beginning to bleach. And yet they say he is a soldier in his knowledge, and a gallant gentleman. Whatever he may be, or however he may be qualified for his rank, he now speaks to you, and, of course, can be no enemy to dread. The scout regarded Hayward in surprise, and then lifting his cap he answered in a tone less confident than before, though still expressing doubt. I have heard a party was to leave the encampment this morning for the lake shore. You have heard the truth, but I preferred a nearer route, trusting to the knowledge of the Indian I mentioned. And he deceived you and then deserted? Neither, as I believe, certainly not the latter, for he is to be found in the rear. I should like to look at the creature. If it is a true Iroquois, I can tell him by his knavish look and by his paint, said the scout, stepping past the charger of Hayward and entering the path behind the mare of the singing master, whose foe had taken advantage of the halt to extract the maternal contribution. After shoving aside the bushes and proceeding a few paces, he encountered the females, who awaited the result of the conference with anxiety, and not entirely without apprehension. Behind these, the runner leaned against a tree, where he stood the close examination of the scout with an air unmoved though with a look so dark and savage that it might in itself excite fear. Satisfied with his scrutiny, the hunter soon left him. As he repassed the females, he paused a moment to gaze upon their beauty. Answering to the smile and nod of Alice, with a look of open pleasure, thence he went to the side of the motherly animal, and spending a minute in a fruitless inquiry into the character of her rider, he shook his head and turned to Hayward. A Mingo is a Mingo, and God having made him so, neither the Mohawks nor any other tribe can alter him, he said, when he had regained his former position. If we were alone, and you would leave that noble horse at the mercy of the wolves tonight, I could show you the way to Edward myself within an hour, for it lies only about an hour's journey hence. But with such ladies in your company? "'Tis impossible. "'And why? "'They are fatigued, but they are quite equal to a ride of a few more miles. "'Tis a natural impossibility,' repeated the scout. "'I wouldn't walk a mile in these woods, after night gets into them, "'in company with that runner, for the best rifle in the colonies. "'They are full of outlying Iroquois, "'and your mongrel Mohawk knows where to find them, too well to be my companion. Think you so? said Hayward, leaning forward in the saddle and dropping his voice nearly to a whisper. I confess, I have not been without my own suspicions, though I have endeavored to conceal them and effected a confidence I have not always felt on account of my companions. It was because I suspected him that I would follow no longer, making him, as you see, follow me. I knew he was one of the cheats as soon as I laid eyes on him, returned the scout, placing a finger on his nose in sign of caution. The thief is leaning against the foot of the sugar sapling that you can see over them bushes. His right leg is in a line with the bark of the tree and tapping his rifle. 
I can take him from where I stand, between the ankle and the knee, with a single shot, putting an end to his tramping through the woods for at least a month to come. If I should go back to him, the cunning varmint would suspect something, and be dodging through the trees like a frightened deer. It will not do. He may be innocent, and I dislike the act. Though if I felt confident of his treachery— "'Tis a safe thing to calculate on the knavery of an Iroquois," said the scout, throwing his rifle forward by a sort of instinctive movement. "'Hold!' interrupted Hayward. "'It will not do. We must think of some other scheme. And yet I have much reason to believe the rascal has deceived me.' The hunter, who had already abandoned his attention of maiming the runner, mused for a moment and then made a gesture which instantly brought his two red companions to his side. They spoke together earnestly in the Delaware language, though in an undertone and by the gestures of the white man, which were frequently directed toward the top of the sapling, it was evident he pointed out the situation of their hidden enemy. His companions were not long in comprehending his wishes, and laying aside their firearms, they parted, taking opposite sides of the path, and burying themselves in the thicket, with such cautious movements that their steps were inaudible. "'Now go you back,' said the hunter, speaking again to Hayward, "'and hold the imp in talk. These Mohicans here will take him without breaking his paint.' "'Nay,' said Hayward proudly, "'I will seize him myself.' "'Hist! What could you do mounted against an Indian in the bushes?' "'I will dismount.' And think you, when he saw one of your feet out of the stirrup, he would wait for the other to be free? Whoever comes into the woods to deal with the natives must use Indian fashions if he would wish to prosper in his undertakings. Go, then, talk openly to the miscreant, and seem to believe him the truest friend you have on earth. Hayward prepared to comply though with strong disgust at the nature of the office he was compelled to execute. Each moment, however, pressed upon him a conviction of the critical situation in which he had suffered his invaluable trust to be involved through his own confidence. The sun had already disappeared, and the woods, suddenly deprived of his light, were assuming a dusky hue, which keenly reminded him that the hour the savage usually choose for his most barbarous and remorseless acts of vengeance or hostility was speedily drawing near. Footnote. The scene of this tale was in the forty-second degree of latitude, where the twilight is never of long continuation. End footnote. Stimulated by apprehension, he left the scout, who immediately entered into a loud conversation with the stranger who had so unceremoniously enlisted himself in the party of the travellers that morning. In passing his gentler companions, Hayward uttered a few words of encouragement, and was pleased to find that, though fatigued with the exercise of the day, they appeared to entertain no suspicion that their present embarrassment was other than the result of accident. Giving them reason to believe he was merely employed in the consultation concerning the future route, he spurred his charger, and drew the reins again when the animal had carried him within a few yards of the place where the sullen runner still stood, leaning against the tree. "'You may see, Maqua,' he
he said, endeavoring to assume an air of freedom and confidence, that the night is closing around us, and yet we are no nearer to William Henry than when we left the encampment of Webb with the rising sun. You have missed the way, nor have I been more fortunate. But happily we have fallen in with a hunter, he whom you hear talking to the singer that is acquainted with the deer paths and byways of the woods, and who promises to lead us to a place where we may rest securely till the morning. The Indian riveted his glowing eyes on Hayward as he asked in his imperfect English, Is he alone? Alone? hesitatingly answered Hayward, to whom deception was too new to be assumed without embarrassment. Oh, not alone. Surely, Maqua, for you know that we are with him. Then Le Renard Subtil will go, returned the runner, coolly raising his little wallet from the place where it had lain at his feet, and the pale faces will see none but their own color. Go, whom you call Le Renard. Tis the name his Canadian fathers have given to Maqua, returned the runner, with an air that manifested his pride at the distinction. Night is the same as day to Le Subtil when Monroe waits for him. And what account will Le Renard give the chief of William Henry concerning his daughters? Will he dare to tell the hot-blooded Scotsman that his children are left without a guide? Tomaqua promised to be one? Though the gray head has a loud voice and a long arm, Le Renard will not hear him, nor feel him in the woods. But what will the Mohawks say? They will make him petticoats and bid him stay in the wigwam with the women for he is no longer to be trusted with the business of a man. Lace of here knows the path to the Great Lakes, and he can find the bones of his fathers, was the answer of the unmoved runner. Enough, Maqua, said Hayward. Are we not friends? Why should there be bitter words between us? Monroe has promised you a gift for your services, when performed, and I shall be your debtor for another. Rest your weary limbs, then, and open your wallet to eat. We have a few moments to spare. Let us not waste them in talk like wrangling women. When the ladies are refreshed, we will proceed. The pale faces make themselves dogs to their women, muttered the Indian in his native language, and then when they want to eat, their warriors must lay aside the tomahawk to feed their laziness. What say you, Renard? Le Subtil says... It is good. The Indian then fastened his eyes keenly on the open countenance of Hayward, but meeting his glance, he turned them quickly away, and seating himself deliberately on the ground, he drew forth the remnant of some former repast and began to eat, though not without first bending his look slowly and cautiously around him. This is well, continued Hayward, and the Renaud will have strength and sight to find the path in the morning. He paused, for sounds like the snapping of a dried stick, and the rustling of leaves rose from the adjacent bushes. But recollecting himself instantly, he continued, We must be moving before the sun is seen, or Montcalm may lie in our path, and shut us out from the fortress. The hand of Maqua dropped from his mouth to his side, and though his eyes were fastened on the ground, his head was turned aside, his nostrils expanded, and his ears seemed to stand even more erect than usual, giving him the appearance of a statue that was made to represent intense 
attention. Hayward, who watched his movements with a vigilant eye, carelessly extricated one of his feet from the stirrup while he passed the hand toward the bearskin covering of his holsters. Every effort to detect the point most regarded by the runner was completely frustrated by the tremulous glances of his organs, which seemed not to rest a single instant on any particular object, and which at the same time could be hardly said to move. While he hesitated how to proceed, Le Subtil cautiously raised himself to his feet, though with a motion so slow and guarded that not the slightest noise was produced by the change. Hayward felt it had now become incumbent on him to act. Throwing his leg over the saddle, he dismounted with a determination to advance and seize his treacherous companion, trusting the result to his own manhood. In order, however, to prevent unnecessary alarm, he still preserved an air of calmness and friendship. "'Le Renard Substils does not eat,' he said, using the appellation he had found most flattering to the vanity of the Indian. "'His corn is not well parched, and it seems dry. Let me examine. Perhaps something may be found among my own provisions that will help his appetite.' Maqua held out the wallet to the proffer of the other. He even suffered their hands to meet, without betraying the least emotion or varying his riveted attitude of attention. But when he felt the fingers of Hayward moving gently along his own naked arm, he struck up the limb of the young man, and uttering a piercing cry, he darted beneath it and plunged at a single bound into the opposite thicket. At the next instant the form of Chingachgook appeared from the bushes, looking like a specter in its paint and glided across the path in swift pursuit. Next followed the shout of Uncas, when the woods were lighted by a sudden flash that was accompanied by the sharp report of the hunter's rifle. End of chapter 4 This reading by Gary W. Sherwin of Yukon, Pennsylvania, in the summer of 2007. Chapter 5 of The Last of the Mohicans, a narrative of 1757, by James Fenimore Cooper. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 5 Quote, In such a night did this be fearfully o'ertrip the dew, and saw the lion's shadow ere himself. Unquote. Merchant of Venice. The suddenness of the flight of his guide, and the wild cries of the pursuers, caused Hayward to remain fixed for a few moments in inactive surprise. Then, recollecting the importance of securing the fugitive, he dashed aside the surrounding bushes, and pressed eagerly forward to lend his aid in the chase. Before he had, however, proceeded a hundred yards, he met the three foresters already returning from their unsuccessful pursuit. "'Why so soon disheartened?' he exclaimed. "'The scoundrel must be concealed behind some of these trees, and may yet be secured. We are not safe while he goes at large.' "'Would you set a cloud to chase the wind?' returned the disappointed scout. 
I heard the imp brushing over the dry leaves like a black snake, and blinking a glimpse of him just over again yon big pine, I pulled as it might be on the scent. But twouldn't do. And yet, for a reasoning aim, if anybody but myself had touched the trigger, I should call it a quick sight, and I may be accounted to have experience in these matters, and one who ought to know. Look at this sumac. Its leaves are red, though everybody knows the fruit is yellow blossom in the month of July. Tis the blood of Subtil. He is hurt and may yet fall. No, no, returned the scout in decided disappropriation of his opinion. I rubbed the bark off a limb, perhaps, but the creature leaped the longer for it. A rifle bullet acts like a running animal when it barks him, much the same as one of your spurs on a horse. That is, it quickens motion and puts life into the flesh instead of taking it away. But when it cuts the ragged hole after a bound or two, there is commonly a stagnation of further leaping, be it Indian or be it deer. We are four able bodies to one wounded man. Is life grievous to you, interrupted the scout? Yon red devil would draw you within swing of the tomahawks of his comrades before you were heeded in the chase. It was an unthoughtful act in a man who has so often slept with the war-hoop ringing in the air to let off his piece within sound of ambushment. But then it was a natural temptation. T'was very natural. Come, friends, let us move our station, and in such fashion, too, as will throw the cunning of a mingo on a wrong scent. Or our scalps will be drying in the wind in front of Montcalm's marquee. Again this hour to-morrow. This appalling declaration, which the scout uttered with the cool assurance of a man who fully comprehended, while he did not fear to face the danger, served to remind Hayward of the importance of the charge with which he himself had been entrusted. Glancing his eyes around with a vain effort to pierce the gloom that was thickening beneath the leafy arches of the forest, he felt as if cut off from human aid. His unresisting companions would soon lie at the entire mercy of those barbarous enemies, who, like beasts of prey, only waited till the gathering darkness might render their blows more fatally certain. His awakened imagination, deluded by the deceptive light, converted each waving bush or the fragment of some fallen tree into human forms. And twenty times he fancied he could distinguish the horrid visages of his lurking foes peering from their hiding-places in never-ceasing watchfulness of the movements of his party. Looking upward, he found that the thin fleecy clouds, which evening had painted on the blue sky, were already losing their faintest tints of rose-color, while the embedded stream which glided past the spot where he stood was to be traced only by the dark boundary of its wooded banks. "'What is to be done?' he said, feeling the utter helplessness of doubt in such a pressing strait. "'Desert me not, for God's sake!' Remain to defend those I escort, and freely name your own reward. His companions, who conversed apart in the language of their tribe, heeded not his sudden and earnest appeal. Though their dialogue was maintained in low and cautious sounds, but little above a whisper, Hayward, who now approached, could easily distinguish the earnest tones of the younger warrior from the more deliberate speeches of his seniors. 
it was evident that they debated on the propriety of some measure that nearly concerned the welfare of the travellers. Yielding to his powerful interest in the subject, and impatient of a delay that seemed fraught with so much additional danger, Hayward drew still nigher to the dusky group, with an intention of making his offers of compensation more definite, when the white man, motioning with his hand as if he conceded the disputed point, turned away, saying in a sort of soliloquy, and in the English tongue, Ancus is right. It would not be the act of men to leave such harmless things to their fate, even though it breaks up the harboring place forever. If you would save these tender blossoms from the fangs of the worst serpents, gentlemen, you have neither time to lose nor resolution to throw away. How can such a wish be doubted? Have I not already offered? Offer your prayers to him who can give us wisdom to circumvent the cunning of the devils who fill these woods, calmly interrupted the scout. But spare your offers of money, which neither you may live to realize, nor I to profit by. These Mohicans and I will do what man's thoughts can invent to keep such flowers which, though so sweet, were never made for the wilderness from harm and that without hope of any other recompense but such as God always gives to upright dealings. First, you must promise two things, both in your own name and for your friends, or without serving you, we shall only injure ourselves. Name them. The one is to be still as these sleeping woods, let what will happen, and the other is to keep the place where we shall take you forever a secret from all mortal men. I will do my utmost to see both these conditions fulfilled. Then follow, for we are losing moments that are as precious as the heart's blood to a stricken deer. Hayward could distinguish the impatient gesture of the scout through the increasing shadows of the evening, and he moved in his footsteps swiftly toward the place where he had left the remainder of the party. When they rejoined the expecting and anxious females, he briefly acquainted them with the conditions of their new guide, and with the necessity that existed for their hushing every apprehension in instant and serious exertions. Although his alarming communication was not received without much secret terror by the listeners, his earnest and impressive manner, aided perhaps by the nature of the danger, succeeded in bracing their nerves to undergo some unlooked-for and unusual trial. Silently and without a moment's delay, they permitted him to assist them from their saddles, and when they descended quickly to the water's edge, where the scout had collected the rest of the party, more by the agency of expressive gestures than by any use of words. "'What to do with these dumb creatures?' muttered the white man, on whom the sole control of their future movements appeared to devolve. "'It would be time lost to cut their throats and cast them into the river. "'And to leave them here would be to tell the Mingos that they have not far to seek to find their owners.' "'Then give them their bridles and let them range in the woods,' Hayward ventured to suggest. "'No, it would be better to mislead the imps.' and make them believe they must equal a horse's speed to run down their chase. Ay, ay, that will blind their fireballs of eyes. Chingach, hitch. What stirs in the bush? The colt. 
That coat at least must die, muttered the scout, grasping at the mane of the nimble beast, which easily eluded his hand. Uncas, your arrows! Hold! exclaimed the proprietor of the condemned animal aloud, without regard to the whispering tones used by the others. Spare the foal of Miriam. It is the comely offspring of a faithful dame, and would willingly injure not. When men struggle for the single life God has given them, said the scout sternly, even their own kind seem no more than the beast of the wood. If you speak again, I shall leave you at the mercy of the Maquas. Draw to your arrow's head, Uncas. We have no time for second blows. The low, muttering sounds of his threatening voice were still audible when the wounded foal, first rearing on its hinder legs, plunged forward to its knees. It was met by Chinchgotchkuk, whose knife passed across its throat quicker than thought, and then, precipitating the motions of the struggling victim, he had dashed into the river, down whose stream it glided away, gasping audibly for breath with its ebbing life. This deed of apparent cruelty, but of real necessity, fell upon the spirits of the travelers like a terrific warning of the peril in which they stood. Heightened as it was by the calm though steady resolution of the actors in the scene, the sisters shuddered and clung closer to each other, while Hayward instinctively laid his hand on one of his pistols he had just drawn from their holsters, as he placed himself between his charge and those dense shadows that seemed to draw an impenetrable veil before the bosom of the forest. The Indians, however, hesitated not a moment, but taking the bridles, they led the frightened and reluctant horses into the bed of the river. At a short distance from the shore they turned, and were soon concealed by the projection of the bank under the brow of which they moved, in a direction opposite to the course of the waters. In the meantime the scout drew a canoe of bark from its place of concealment beneath some low bushes, whose branches were waving with the eddies of the current, into which he silently motioned for the females to enter. They complied without hesitation, though many a fearful and anxious glance was thrown behind them toward the thickening gloom, which now lay like a dark barrier along the margin of the stream. So soon as Cora and Alice were seated, the scout, without regarding the element, directed Hayward to support one side of the frail vessel, and posting himself at the other, they bore it up against the stream, followed by the dejected owner of the dead foal. In this manner they proceeded for many rods in a silence that was only interrupted by the rippling of the water, as its eddies played around them, or the low dash made by their own cautious footsteps. Hayward yielded the guidance of the canoe implicitly to the scout, who approached or receded from the shore to avoid the fragments of rocks or deeper parts of the river, with a readiness that showed his knowledge of the route they held. Occasionally he would stop, and in the midst of a breathing stillness that the dull but increasing war of the waterfall only served to render more impressive, he would listen with painful intenseness to catch any sounds that might arise from the slumbering forest. When assured that all was still, and unable to detect, even by the aid of his practiced senses, any sign of his approaching foes, he would deliberately resume his slow and guarded progress. At length, 
they reached a point in the river where the roving eye of Hayward became riveted on a cluster of black objects, collected at a spot where the high banks threw a deeper shadow than usual on the dark waters. Hesitating to advance, he pointed out the place to the attention of his companion. "'Aye,' returned the composed scout, "'the Indians have hid the beast with the judgment of natives. Water leaves no trail, and an owl's eyes would be blinded by the darkness of such a hole.' The whole party was soon reunited, and another consultation was held between the scout and his new comrades, during which they whose fates depended on the faith and ingenuity of these unknown foresters had a little leisure to observe their situation more minutely. The river was confined between high and cragged rocks, one of which impended above the spot where the canoe rested. As these again were surmounted by tall trees, which appeared to totter on the brows of the precipice, it gave the stream the appearance of running through a deep and narrow dell, all beneath the fantastic limbs and ragged tree-tops, which were here and there dimly painted against the starry zenith, lay alike in shadowed obscurity. Behind them, the curvature of the bank soon bounded the view by the same dark and wooded outline. But in front, and apparently at no great distance, the water seemed piled against the heavens, whence it tumbled into caverns, out of which issued those sullen sounds, which had loaded the evening atmosphere. It seemed in truth to be a spot devoted to seclusion, and the sisters imbibed a soothing impression of security as they gazed upon its romantic, though not unappalling, beauties. A general movement among their conductors, however, soon recalled them from a contemplation of the wild charms that night had assisted to lend the place to a painful sense of their real peril. The horses had been secured to some scattering shrubs that grew in the fissures in the rocks, where, standing in the water, they were left to pass the night. The scout directed Hayward and his disconsolate fellow-travellers to seat themselves in the forward end of the canoe, and took possession of the other himself, as erect and steady as if he floated in a vessel of much firmer materials. The Indians warily retraced their steps toward the place they had left, when the scout, placing his pole against a rock, by a powerful shove, sent his frail bark directly into the turbulent stream. For many minutes the struggle between the light bubble in which they floated and the swift current was severe and doubtful. Forbidden to stir even a hand, and almost afraid to breathe lest they should expose the frail fabric to the fury of the stream, the passengers watched the glancing waters in feverish suspense. Twenty times they thought the whirling eddies were sweeping them to destruction, when the master hand of their pilot would bring the bows of the canoe to stem the rapid. Along a vigorous, and as it appeared to the females, a desperate effort closed the struggle. Just as Alice veiled her eyes in horror under the impression that they were about to be swept within the vortex at the foot of the cataract, the canoe floated stationary at the side of a flat rock, that lay on a level with the water. "'Where are we? And what is to be done?' demanded Hayward, perceiving that the exertions of the scout had ceased. "'You are at the foot of Glens,' returned the other, speaking aloud, without fear of consequences within the roar of the cataract. "'And the next thing is to make a steady landing, lest the canoe upset, and you should go down again the hard road we have travelled, faster than you came up.' 
Tis a hard rift to stem, when the river is a little swelled, and five is an unnatural number to keep dry, in a hurry-scurry, with a little birch and bark and gum. There, go you all on the rock, and I will bring up the Mohicans with the venison. A man had better sleep without his scalp than famish in the midst of plenty. His passengers gladly complied with these directions. As the last foot touched the rock, the canoe whirled from its station, when the tall form of the scout was seen, for an instant, gliding above the waters before it disappeared in the impenetrable darkness that rested on the bed of the river. Left by their guide, the travelers remained a few minutes in helpless ignorance, afraid even to move among the broken rocks, lest a false step should precipitate them down some one of the many deep and roaring caverns into which the water seemed to tumble on every side of them. Their suspense, however, was soon relieved, for, aided by the skill of the natives, the canoe shot back into the eddy, and floated again at the side of the low rock, before they thought the scout had time to even rejoin his companions. "'We are now fortified, garrisoned, and provisioned,' cried Hayward cheerfully, "'and may set Montcalm and his allies at defiance.' How now, my vigilant sentinel, can see anything of those you call the Iroquois on the mainland? I call them Iroquois because to me every native who speaks a foreign tongue is accounted an enemy, though he may pretend to serve the king. If Webb wants faith and honesty in an Indian, let him bring out the tribes of the Delawares, and send these greedy and lying Mohawks and Oneidas with their six nations of varlets, where in nature they belong, among the French. We should then exchange a warlike for a useless friend. I have heard that Delawares have laid aside the hatchet, and are content to be called women. Aye, shame on the Hollanders and Iroquois who circumvented them by their deviltries into such a treaty. But I have known them for twenty years, and I call him liar that says cowardly blood runs in the veins of a Delaware. You have driven their tribes from the seashore, and would now believe what their enemies say, that you may sleep at night upon an easy pillow. No, no, to me every Indian who speaks a foreign tongue is an Iroquois, whether the castle of his tribe be in Canada or be in York. Footnote. The principal villages of the Indians are still called castles by the whites of New York. Oneida Castle is no more than a scattered hamlet, but the name is in general use. End footnote. Hayward, perceiving the stubborn adherence of the scout to the cause of his friends the Delawares or Mohicans, for they were the branch of the same numerous people, was likely to prolong a useless discussion, changed the subject. Treaty or no treaty, I know full well that your two companions are brave and cautious warriors. Have they heard or seen anything of our enemies? An Indian is a mortal to be felt afore he is seen, returned the scout, ascending the rock and throwing the deer carelessly down. I trust to other signs than such as come in at the eye when I am outlying on the trail of the Mingos. Do your ears tell you that they have traced our retreat? I should be sorry to think they had though this is a spot that stout courage might hold for a smart scrimmage. I will not deny, however, but the horses cowered when I passed them, 
as though they scented the wolves, and a wolf is a beast that is apt to hover about an Indian ambushment, craving the offals of the deer the savages kill. You forget the buck at your feet, or may we not owe their visit to the dead colt? Ha! Huh, what noise is that? Poor Miriam, murmured the stranger, thy foal is foreordained to become prey to ravenous beast. Then suddenly lifting up his voice amid the eternal din of the waters, he sang aloud, First born of Egypt, smite did he, of mankind and of beast also. O Egypt, wonder sent midst thee, O Pharaoh and his servants too. The death of the colt sits heavy on the heart of its owner, said the scout. But it's a good sign to see a man account upon his dumb friends. He has the religion of the matter, in believing what is to happen will happen. And with such a consolation, it won't be long before he submits to the rationality of killing a four-footed beast to save the lives of human men. It may be as you say, he continued, reverting to the purport of Hayward's last remark, and the greater the reason why we should cut our stakes and let the carcass drive down the stream, or we shall have the pack howling along the cliffs, begrudging every mouthful we swallow. Besides, though the Delaware tongue is the same as a book to the Iroquois, the cunning varlets are quick enough in understanding the reason of a wolf's howl. The scout, while making his remarks, was busied in collecting certain necessary implements. As he concluded, he moved silently by the group of travelers, accompanied by the Mohicans, who seemed to comprehend his intentions with instinctive readiness, when the whole three disappeared in succession, seeming to vanish against the dark face of a perpendicular rock that rose to the height of a few yards within as many feet of the water's edge. End of chapter 5 This reading by Gary W. Sherwin of Yukon, Pennsylvania, in the summer of 2007. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.